I'm Eric Reese. This is Out of the Crisis. It's been a long 18 months, hasn't it? And during that time, we have seen it again and again, unlikely people thrust into the spotlight for their work fighting the pandemic, and even more, tirelessly working away out of the limelight. One such person is Aaron Bali. However, if you went back in time and told Aaron a few years ago that he would one day be at the center of one of the largest public health responses in history, I don't think he would have believed you. Aaron came to the U.S. from Turkey to work at a Silicon Valley tech startup, which is actually where I first met him a few years ago. But now, as CEO and founder of Carbon Health, Aaron is leading one of the fastest growing healthcare startups. Carbon Health is a provider of low-cost health clinics across the country. As you'll hear, COVID arrived unexpectedly and directly on their doorstep. They had to decide whether and how to respond. What happened next was entirely unexpected, even by those of us who've admired Aaron for a long time. Carbon Health is now running some of the largest vaccination sites in California, most famously at Dodger Stadium in partnership with the city of Los Angeles. During the pandemic, Carbon Health fully reinvented themselves from an affordable care provider into a full-stack public health company. This raises the question, how did Aaron go from building apps on top of Facebook to ensuring that hundreds of thousands of Americans got their vaccines? We've seen this story before, even on this podcast with stories like Curative. Why did a private company, a startup, wind up playing a vital role in the vaccination rollout? And what was it about Carbon Health that made them ready and able to step into this vital civic responsibility? What can this tell us about the future of public health, about public-private partnerships, and about the civic fabric that we all inhabit? In this conversation, Aaron and I talked about his journey from a small town in Turkey to founding the education startup Udemy, also quite successful, to Carbon Health and eventually Carbon Health's vaccination efforts. Aaron spoke openly about his growth as a founder and leader, as well as gave candid advice for future founders. His number one takeaway is one we have heard again and again. Put the mission first, think long-term, and everything else will fall into place. Here's my conversation with Aaron Bali. My name is Aaron Bali. I'm the founder and CEO of Carbon Health. We are a technology-enabled healthcare provider. And most recently, we have been helping the vaccine rollout, um, and we run some of the largest mass vaccination sites in the country, including Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. And before Carbon Health, I was the founder and CEO of Udemy, which is now the largest online education platform in the world. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. How have you been? How's your family? How's your team? How have you been weathering the storm? I think I, I have been doing fine because um, at Carbon, we, were, we have been really in the front lines of the pandemic. And when you're when you're very busy with something, it actually like the it helps you um, stay strong. And I have three small toddlers, so I'm, I'm enjoying working from home quite a bit. <laughs> I know the feeling. So, to share a little bit about your background. You've done some really really interesting things in the in the tech industry, including going back to when we first met. But I also think you know it's it's not the usual path people would imagine to running a healthcare company. So so talk a little bit about about your background. How did you first get into tech and come to Silicon Valley? So if we go really back, I was born in, born in a small village in southeast part of Turkey. That was that's the kind of lowest income part of the country, which uh, which, which had a lot of accessibility issues. So I grew up where we had only one teacher for the entire school, rotating between classes. 
uh, both healthcare and education access was really limited. Uh, so that was kind of that was the '80s, and I was able to break out of it because I was very interested in mathematics and. Um, to everyone's surprise, end up winning silver medal in international math Olympiads, which was one of the first times somebody from the eastern part of the Turkey had uh, really uh, participated and uh, like won a medal. But the main reason like this happened in my mind was that I the intern access to internet really kind of made a big change in my life because even when you're in the, the place with lowest access to education, um, having access to other people online, mathematic problems. Like it allowed me to kind of self-study this in a way that would not be possible probably 10 years uh, before. Uh, so I studied computer science and, mathem- and mathematics um, in Turkey and then decided to create start a platform which would allow everyone to be able to teach online. I was really inspired with uh, platforms like YouTube and Blogger. And I thought somebody should have should do the same thing for online education. Uh, and, and started the company in Turkey first. Uh, that didn't work. I shut it down. We had to move to Silicon Valley. So it was a really long story. I guess it, it took three, four years to get Udemy off the ground. But uh, yes, I, I, I migrated from Turkey to Silicon Valley in 2010 um, and and started uh, Udemy. And, but before that, actually, I there was this couple of years break where um, when Udemy did not work in Turkey, I met this uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur uh, who wanted to build an online like speed dating, uh, video-based speed dating application. So we actually uh, took the original live classroom application to convert into a live video dating application. So that's how I, I came to Silicon Valley in the first place. I remember Speed Date. That's uh, one of the very, very early companies um, that uh, that I was talking to Lean Startup about. What, what was that, 2009, 2010? Yeah, I think it was 2009 and 10. Yeah, wow, that was that's that's a blast from the past. So say a little bit about what drove you to want to come to Silicon Valley in the first place. Honestly, I wasn't even aware of Silicon Valley or this whole concept of startups and tech companies. I'll be honest, like until 2005, um, I thought these were just websites built by some amateur hobbies. So I was really interested in programming, design, development. Uh, but I didn't. I hadn't realized the kind of business aspect for a very, very long time. And when we started at Udemy in Turkey in 2006 and 2007, so there was no funding available. Eventually, I started working at nights as a kind of contract developer for Silicon Valley companies um, as a way to fund the project in Turkey. And then eventually, they asked me to come to Silicon Valley and maybe just work in person a little bit. And then while I was visiting Silicon Valley, I, I realized that there's this complete new world uh, of technology companies. They're businesses, they're professional, uh, they do things differently. So I got involved, I went back and forth, and, and eventually really I realized that to really build the vision we had for Udemy, we had to be in Silicon Valley. What was it like the first time? Uh, I remember even just I grew up in San Diego, so not nearly as far as Turkey. And yet even for me, the first time that I drove around Silicon Valley and saw the the headquarters of all the companies that, you know, I had had all these relationships with, you know, as a, as a customer, as a developer, uh, it was it was a profound thing. What was it like for you? It was a very interesting experience as in, it wasn't what I was thinking Silicon Valley is. I thought I would come and there would be this massive buildings, really like, technology infrastructure and screens everywhere. So I, I was imagining it more of a 
like an Asian kind of Hong Kong type of city. <laughs> Almost like Blade Runner. In my head, is like Silicon Valley, and I came in and there was a bunch of kind of suburban houses. Yeah, it's very boring. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a lot more like boring, like, like visually. I mean, but, but I loved the weather. I loved the fact that it wasn't intimidating. It was just a bunch of people, smart people, very welcoming, very open to people from other cultures. Uh, so I was surprised with how unintimidating it was for a, for a newcomer. Um, uh, but I think the, I just quickly adapted and I realized uh, it wasn't just about writing software, things like customer service, marketing, growth. Those ideas were like becoming, they were very refreshing because um, like the, those ideas are very unique to Silicon Valley or at least like back in the day, they were very unique to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. How would you contrast the difference? I think one of the things that we who are you have the privilege of being here, you know, in, in America, in California, in Silicon Valley, you know, we don't we don't even see and appreciate the water that we swim in. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it takes an outsider with an outsider's eyes to to help us understand what is distinctive about it. So what what were those differences that that caught your attention when you first first immersed yourself in the ecosystem here? I was really shocked with how collaborative the whole ecosystem was. I mean, I was observing our founder, CEO, uh, Simon. He would ask for help and they would meet us and just give us all the information we needed. So it was, it was weird that like you could just literally ask help from anybody and they would try to help. Uh, so, and yeah, I think that because uh, I think most other countries have more of a kind of cynical approach to businesses and every company is thinking of each, each, each other as a competitor. So Silicon Valley just felt super open. And it also made me think that like there is the opportunity for people like for newcomers to mm-hmm. uh, to come in and be, be successful there. Um, but the on the the, the negative side, the, the whole world of raising money, investors, that part felt intimidating. So um, like there's definitely the feeling that you just sometimes you didn't belong. Like when you, when essentially I interacted with money, uh, then, then I felt a little bit more, more like foreign. Uh, but, but if when you pe- talk to the people in the ecosystem, starting companies, that was very open. Mm, that's really interesting. And that, that is a common, a common experience we hear from outsiders that there's really two cultures of Silicon Valley. And, and when we get into the funding and financing of companies that that's really where the bias can come in. Was there a particular moment you remember or a, a particular story of just feeling like you didn't belong or, or someone uh, treated you in a way that you, you look back now, you realize was about that difference? I, I remember two things. One is occasionally we would sit down on the table. Like the, the small talk is the hardest thing for immigrants. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the American sports and American sports are also very different than the rest of the world sports. Indeed. We're trying to adapt that to like, it, that was always like a tough challenge for me to just be a part of, try to be a part of it. And, and I also, I mean, I'm, I'm still a man and I just also understand if you don't even enjoy sports, like those type of like small talk subjects were always like the, the most challenging. I would, I would feel most stressed in the first couple of minutes of a discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the second thing is like occasion, a lot of people would assume I'm a technical like CTO of a company. So most people would make the assumption like that I'm not the CEO of the company, even after we start Udemy. Yeah, that, I've, I've heard that story from a lot of folks. I'm, I'm sorry. 
Um, you know, we actually have a lot of listeners of this podcast in Turkey. It's it's actually consistently one of the top countries mm-hmm. uh, for reasons I don't I don't totally understand. Um, but I'm curious, given that we have a lot of listeners from Turkey, if you have words of advice for them, or if there's anything you you'd want them to know, if there's the folks listening right now who who hope to emulate your footsteps someday. Yeah, I think most people from Turkey ask me whether they should move to Silicon Valley. Is this the requirement? And my answer is really, it isn't. I think since 2005, a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason you have so many uh, listeners from Turkey is a good proof that uh, the information is more democratized at this point. So you don't have to be physically in Silicon Valley or San Francisco to honestly get, get access to the best advice. Um, and also the funding has also been democratized. I have made several investments in Turkey. I mean, when we first started, somebody had asked me in a conference whether they thought there would ever be a billion-dollar company from Turkey. And since then, Udemy, Udemy, which is, I guess, in fairness, I started Udemy in Silicon Valley formally, mm-hmm. but it's still a $5 million company started by Turkish people. Mm-hmm. And then there were also two other companies started in Turkey, which were multi-billion dollar exits. Um, and there's another one, I think, which is on the path to be a 10 to $20 billion company. So I think Incredible. the last 10 years, like the Turkey ecosystem has, I guess like the, the concept of Silicon Valley has been less about the physical location at this point, more about- State of mind. The state, state of, of mind, mind the industry um, we are in. Yeah, yeah, that that is a hard thing uh, for folks who've never experienced it directly and who tend to mythologize this physical place. You know, it's not like the sunshine and the low-rise buildings you were describing and the strip malls is the thing that makes it magical. Um, it is a certain ethos about uh, about innovation and about people, uh, and that kind of cross-cultural collaboration, you know, has been emulated now by by people all over the world. I think that's that's actually an inc- uh, incredible positive development. And and I think like Eric, I think like you've been a part of this idea that. But the, if you really democratize the advice and the methodology of starting companies and everything else, um, funding and physical space and like talent, those things are actually sold over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. That that certainly has been been part of my mission now for for a number of years. Um, so thank you. I got to ask you one question about speed dating. I'm really curious, you know, for now when, when founders encounter lean startup, you know, it's, it's a famous old idea um, mm-hmm. for, for most folks. And, and yet um, when you were at Speed Date, you, you were the head of engineering there, I think, mm-hmm. at a time that was before the book had been published, before even uh, lean startup was, was especially famous. Um, mm-hmm. What was it like to be on the receiving end of that advice at a time when it, when it wasn't very popular? I was actually, I remember actually the first time uh, the lean startup ideas came and it immediately resonated with me because we had spent 18 months building the first version of Udemy in Turkey, which was a live education platform for learning. And we spent all this time building, we obsessed about a lot of details and we launched it and we realized there's no way a live marketplace for online learning is gonna work. Like literally after 18 months in 10 days, it became obvious that by the time people schedule a session to, to participate, like we were losing 95% of people. And most people were really horrible at live teaching. And unfortunately, we did not have any resources to like do a take two of that. So I had to shut down the company, move to Silicon Valley full time. And then we came to Silicon Valley and we launched the first version of Speed Date, I think in seven days total. 
Mm-hmm. They had to raise some seed capital. I literally took the original Udemy live video platform, converted to a live video dating application. In seven days, we launched the application. Like we literally did not have a forgot password button and the app had like a million bugs and issues, but we just launched it and started having users and iterated with the user feedback. So that was the polar opposite of what we had intuitively done in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that was right when I think you and Steve like had this kind of ideas of iterating with customer feedback. Uh, so yeah, I, like, to me, I just like sucked in all that knowledge because like back in that day, it was like a very like refreshing concept. At this point, I think it has been so mainstream. So people have yeah. the default. So back in, back that time, it wasn't default. The default was spending two years trying to perfect an application and doing a big launch and demo day or I mean TechCrunch disrupt. And uh, the goal was that like in, in the first day of launch, you would get so much press, you would get one, a bunch of customer, and then some of those customers would would retain. That used to be the playbook back in the day. Yeah, it's it's really it's actually such a short time that this is this has changed that a lot of new founders can't can't believe it. Um, and so I'm glad to get you get you on the record just as a as a testimonial about what it was like that you know it's only ten or eleven years ago that we're we're talking about. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a wild time. And I think like one of the things I'm going to jump to carbon, but I think since then I think the concepts have evolved quite a bit. So we are not realizing it's not a single playbook, but. Mm-hmm. When we first started carbon health, so in healthcare space, it's not easy to just um, just build an application seven days and launch it, right? So because we were trying to be a technology-enabled primary care provider, so but to be a healthcare provider, you have to get the license and you, you have to incorporate, you have to have a physical location, you have to be able to prescribe medication, you have to be able to order labs, medical imaging, referrals, insurance billing. Like the bar is fairly high. But, and we didn't launch the first version in seven days. I think it took us 10 months to launch the first version. But there was still some similarities. We, when we launched the first version, what we tried to prove that was first was that patients would actually want this technology-driven, mobile app-driven customer experience. And to prove that, we started accepting patients, but we couldn't tell them that the service was going to be free so we literally did not have an actual billing infrastructure, but we didn't tell people it was free. We just acted like we, acted like we are going to submit a claim to their insurance company. We just never actually did it, just so that we can prove some of the theses earlier, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, I guess, that wasn't your typical let's launch an application and mount an iterate model. But then even in healthcare, there's a similarity. Like I think the concept has actually evolved. Uh, the methodologies are like are, are just getting better and like are changing based on the industry. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I I think that's something that people miss often is that you know, lead startup is a philosophy; it's a set of principles. It has to be translated into specific tactics and strategies that are very context sensitive. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when you're in a highly regulated in- industry like healthcare or finance, it, the playbook is going to look really different. But the mindset is really what we're trying to to cultivate. So, I actually think it's really an interesting example of you taking something, you know, that was learned, you know, in, in online education and online dating, and then to take it into a, you know, a much more, if you forgive me for saying a much more serious problem Mm -hmm. domain of healthcare. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm of course, you know, really honored to have played even the smallest part in that. That's, 
that was you know that was my aspiration in, in writing the book originally. But I'm curious why you made that choice to to make that switch. How how did you tell us how, kind of how Carbon Health came about? How, why, it's a much more difficult problem mm-hmm. to tackle. Um, what what inspired you to do it? Honestly, I think from Udemy to Carbon, in my perspective, I had a very linear approach, but I can totally see how it's, uh, it feels non-linear. So, so we started, I, I, I was at Speeddate, left to start Udemy in Silicon Valley again in 2010. And Udemy became, I would say, like widely successful. Uh, we grew quite a bit in the first five years. I was a founder and CEO. And Udemy's mission was really making online education more accessible. But broadly, I was fascinated with this idea that you can use technology to make something really essential accessible to more people. So, and I was really thinking like Udemy was a great example of of like techno-optimism, right? So when you build the platform, a lot of people who are not your typical Ivy League college professors can be teachers, can make a living, but also they can actually share their expertise with uh, with like t- hundreds of thousands of other people. So, and then I started thinking about what other industries need this type of transformation. And healthcare was really top of the list for me. And then while I was thinking about it, my, my mom had this disease called neuropsychoidosis. So she had this full body stroke, which was completely unexplained. Uh, she's back in Turkey. So I moved to moved back to Turkey for a couple months. Uh, my sister's a physician. We were going from doctor to doctor and trying to understand what was happening. And we were carrying thousands of pages of documents, lab results, DVDs with MR, CT scans. And I think we kind of, we just jumped around 13 really kind of specialized physicians. And there's no sad story here. So the Physician number 14 diagnosed it and the treatment worked fairly well. But I, I just directly observed that the technology, the tooling uh, for doctors were really far from what they needed to operate at a high productivity level. And I actually made a sketch back in 2013, like three years before I started the carbon. Um, and this, the story here is we were going from doctor to doctor. Every doctor would look at these pages and they'd just go through hundreds of like thousands of pages and write some things in their notebook. And then they use their notebook to understand what might be happening. And I asked my sister, I said, what are they writing on their notebooks? And she said, they're making a chronology of the, of the case. And my immediate naive reaction was like, why don't we give the whole content in a chronology format in the first place if that's how they are thinking about the problem. So, and I made a sketch about if, like, how I would design the physician's interface if I was building a new kind of healthcare software platform. Um, and I just left that around. When my mom recovered, I came back to Silicon Valley and continued continue to be the CEO of Udemy. But that idea kind of got stuck in my head that like the, the largest, most, the most expensive resource of any country were, was one of the, the worst utilized. And I said, somebody should really rethink how a doctor operates, how they communicate with the patient, how that whole concept of care delivery works. Um, and I and a couple of friends, like we kind of sat down and started making some sketches 
Um, and I, I, I realized that this was one of the thorny problems with a lot of regulatory challenges that most founders were not wanting to work at. So, uh, there were healthcare founders, but they always wanted to take a take a slice of the problem. Um, and what I really wanted to do was just bring the, the strongest technology product physician kind of clinical operations people together to, to figure out whether you can use technology to make great healthcare accessible to more people. So really like what was disappointing for me was that there were healthcare companies and technology with, with using technology, but they were all exclusively focused on young, affluent, like high-income patients. And I, I hadn't really seen even a single company who's trying to serve the average, average retail worker, average teacher in this country. Like that domain was almost completely answered from the technology space. And understanding how complex this problem was, I thought somebody should spend 10 years of their lives just, just obsessing on this problem. So how did you get from somebody should really do something about this to you're going to do something about this? I, I initially tried to look for founders to invest. So um, I, I met a bunch of founders. I, I then realized like the intersection of the, the, the founding team, team who's technical enough, who's product-driven enough, with the intersection of the founders who are open to learning this new concept, just not making any assumptions about how healthcare works. Instead, was we were willing to just come in and learn from some of the people in the industry as well. And the, the, the intersection, the third intersection part of the intersection is like people who are willing to work on a tourney problem, right? Like mass market healthcare delivery. Like I, I literally couldn't find anybody that I thought was doing it the, the way I thought it should be done. And I decided that like at that time, Udemy was already at the maturization phase. Uh, I think we were a fairly sizable company and uh, we had a strong executive team. And and like we, I, I thought like just hiring a CEO for Udemy and then me taking on this new challenge like sounded like the right thing to do considering how important the problem is. Mm-hmm. So what is the mission of Carbon Health? It is very, it's very simple. It's all about how you can provide really high quality healthcare to the entire population. So, and especially focus, focusing on the demographics which, which are not being served. So really, it's, it's just a combining this very software-driven, very technology-driven approach with day-to-day healthcare. But more tactically, um, we decided that we have to start from the front door of the healthcare system because that's a consumer decision. So things like primary care, urgent care, virtual care, maybe even mental health, these are decisions that consumers make. So we did just we theorized that if you provide an amazing experience without increasing the cost at all, you could really kind of dominate that, that, that front door. And if you can become a very sizable healthcare provider in the front door of the healthcare system, what happens is the rest of the healthcare system, like specialists and hospitals and imaging centers, things like that. So those really rely on your patients um, to really, I mean, to feed their business. If you, if you become their primary 
really customer acquisition channel, you can now use your influence with the front door of the healthcare system to create a more democratized marketplace for the rest of the healthcare. So it, that that's really kind of the thing. It, it, it's a little more com- like a little more complicated, but in reality, but it's really owning the primary care with high quality, low cost, very modern care, and then really trying to pressure the rest of the healthcare system to have the highest, best clinical outcomes at the lowest cost possible. So take me back in time to right before the pandemic, you know, the start of 2020. Where was, um, where was Carbon Health at that point? How, how big had it gotten? How many, how many clinics had you opened? Um, and just give us a sense of the stage of the company as, as you wound up facing the pandemic. So we were in a very interesting phase because we, I started Udemy in 2016. So we were a four-year-old company. And we had spent the first several years really nailing the unit economics, the customer experience, the, really the software operations finance. And we had finally come to a place where the numbers were just undeniably working. So we had managed to provide a really modern healthcare experience with very high MPS score, very high retention, while still having a very strong provider experience. And lastly, in a way where we were, were seeing very good profitability with Medicare reimbursement rates. So that essentially we had finally hit the benchmark, which I considered as the benchmark to just start scaling the company like crazy. Like it was several years of optimization and then we would actually scale at that moment. I think January of 2006, 20 was when we said, okay, now we are going to just take this, this scales as fast as humanly possible. And I think we had seven clinics just at that moment, uh, but we also had like a pipeline of 20 clinics for 2020. And the pandemic hit us actually fairly early because we have the system that takes the, this, the details of the patient's problem. And when we started seeing the, chi- the news from China, we put some uh, additional questions to screen for COVID risk. And as early as January, we started seeing patients who were coming from literally from Wuhan, China to California, and they were coming to our clinics with respiratory symptoms. So we caught this really early and then started really getting into this crisis management mode in, in January. So by the time it was considered a pandemic in March, we had decided that this is going to be our focus for the, for the foreseeable future. Did I read correctly that the first case in California was found in a carbon health clinic? So, yeah, so it was it was one of our patients which we couldn't get tested, uh, but then eventually because uh, CDC was only CDC was providing testing at that point. Oh, that's right. But that patient, we were monitoring a lot of patients, not just one patient. We were monitoring thousands of patients remotely, so we were asking them to stay at home. We would actually check back with them with them daily. Uh, and then if their symptoms get worse, you would actually then suggest them to go to other places. So I think one of the patient, one of those patients went to ER and then got tested by CDC in a community hospital and was considered as one of the, I think, I think it was the, considered the, the first community spread patient. Talk a little bit about your mindset as this information was rolling in. You know, you, you, this was before the general public really had an awareness of this and obviously the American response and kind of, um, Mm-hmm. Our our level of alertness to this crisis was very slow. What what was it like having that information? How did you know what actions to take? What did you view as your guiding light as you started to navigate those difficult waters? So, 
there was a lot of uncertainty. I would say um, the CDC guidance, honestly, was very weak. It didn't really tell us anything substantial about what we should be doing as a healthcare provider. Uh, and there were some people who in the company even who said, like, this is going to be a massive problem. We have to just put all of our resources to fight this pandemic. Uh, and then there were also other people who thought this might be a three-month kind of problem and it might be gone by the summer. Um, and I had to make the kind of final call as the CEO. And there was also this like massive PPE shortage. Like we were literally short of uh, N95 masks. And I, I just discussed with our, our clinical leadership and we dis- we made the decision to just be on the front lines of this pandemic and offer testing as soon as possible. Essentially, we ha- like, I mean, I and clinical, dis- our clinical leadership said, like, we, ha- we just have to be in the solutions part of this problem. Because just to kind of put that, like, at that time, most healthcare providers, I mean, pretty much all of them were trying to, like, shut down clinics, reduce hours. They were mostly trying to um, reduce their risk factors. And they were hoping that the government, the public health departments would actually take ownership of the response there. So we decided to just go to the other direction. And I remember talking to my wife about this because I, I felt really horrible. Like I, I mean, the analogy I, I gave my wife is I said, like, I, I feel like I'm a generalist, general sending soldiers to the front lines. Mm-hmm. Because we, we, we really did not know what the real risk factor is. Um, and for all we know, we could have, I don't know, 10% of our staff getting, getting infected. And because in, in Italy, the news about healthcare providers were very, I mean, they were not good. But our clinical leadership actually had a lot of experience in from the original SARS epidemic back in the day, uh, pandemic. So um, they thought that if we have the right protection, right protocols, we could actually safely help our communities. But as I said, I think our clinical leadership made the final decision to just lean in. And I I, I felt horrible. I was still for our employees. I mean, I, I just, we started like trying to, and I just said like the entire team is now, your job is to support our frontline workers. And as the situation became more and more dire around um, end of February, we had this executive meeting and our head of product, Ayo said, Let's just think about what what we wish we would have done if we knew that this is going to be a devastating pandemic. And I had brought actually a list of like really crazy ideas uh, for that meeting, and my goal was just to kind of inspire some other ideas. And I kind of had this list of ten crazy ideas that we could consider if you really want to kind of take this pandemic very seriously. And I think what happened is over the next 18 months, we have implemented every single one of them. Hmm. Give some examples. Yeah, so the first one was um, just building, the simple one was building a risk assessment system to evaluate COVID risk. The second one was, I think, um, just buying a bunch of trailers and converting them into mobile testing centers and going to underserved communities. Another one was partnering with companies to help them operate safely if, if, for, if they are essential companies. 
Uh, I think the another one was uh, really kind of partnering with local governments on this part and trying to help them. And one of the most immediate things was going to um, residential, so not residential, the um, assisted living centers and uh, reg- registered nursing homes and try to just screen them in a weekly basis. So, is it, I mean, in retrospect, they, these, these look like straightforward ideas, but I think the only thing we haven't done in that original list was kind of building a makeshift, makeshift ICU center. So if the hospital ICU beds get like really, sh- like get completely booked. So we were considering to work with um, kind of military to build a kind of uh, like, a, like a portable ICU kind of system. So I think like aside from that, everything else like became necessary. Actually, one more was um, doing at-home testing. So um, it, it, all of those kind of original crazy ideas became reality like in the last next year or so. If you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice uh, from those early days, is there something now you go back and you, you wish you had done or, or had done differently? I think the only thing that we didn't anticipate was how long this was going to take. So um, we funneled all of our resources into responding to the pandemic, assuming it's going to it was going to be a three to six month problem. And then after, I guess, like a little bit more than a year, we are in better shape. But I, I, I honestly like don't think we would have done much differently because we just like there were certain solutions we we built that we realized wasn't the most important solution. But like I, I don't I think our attitude was correct like because we just decided to take this more seriously than pretty much anybody else in the country. Mm-hmm. So fast forwarding a little bit, you wound up becoming a critical part of the vaccine infrastructure and vaccine response. Um, how did that get started? So the story of vaccine is like our involvement with vaccine actually started last summer. So when we, when I was observing how the country was so unprepared to do testing on scale, mm-hmm. so and then seeing that the vaccines might come in sooner than people expect, so I had actually written an article and I said like we have to start preparing the infrastructure for vaccines like from today. Mm-hmm. We should essentially build them as if the vaccine is going to be ready six months later. You're really smart. So, and we, op- we were opening this pop-up clinics, the trailers. And my goal was that when vaccines were available, we would be using pop-ups as the kind of core vaccine distribution infrastructure. But when the vaccines actually came out, there were two things that like I hadn't calculated. Number one, um, the storage requirements were very strict. Uh, like keeping them at minus 80 Celsius was not going to be something you can do in a small clinic or pop-up. And the number two is um, for especially older high-risk patients, you had, to, you had to monitor them for 30 minutes. So we, I realized that vaccinating somebody takes two minutes, but the, the monitoring is 30 minutes. So your main bottleneck is going to be the physical space. So we quickly pivoted from this mobile clinic-based model to uh, like thinking about how we could do mass, va- mass vaccination. And I, I sketched something over the New Year's. And I think early January, the vaccine rollout in California was really bad. I think California was one of the, the kind of uh, 
diverse states in terms of the vaccine distribution. And Los Angeles was particularly struggling. It was a fairly sizable city. And there was a state-launched state system which was not working very well. Um, they were really, really struggling. So we quickly showed them what we thought should be available to the vaccine distribution of scale. And to the credit of Mary's team and the LA Fire Department, they saw what we had built and sketched, and they said, what's the fastest you could imagine launching this? And we asked them for two days, and two days later, two days after our first meeting, uh, we launched a website to just get people to sign up or get, join the waiting list for vaccinate, getting vaccinated in LA. And then we, we launched the, the front-end scheduling system first, and then we like in seven days after we built our first version of the provider platform, and this is not completely from scratch. To be fair, like so, because we own our entire technology stack, we had all the the infrastructure for scheduling and triaging patients, like the provider platform, registering medication administration. We already had the infrastructure. We just built a new skin on top of our existing software platform. Yeah, it was it was this like. We have a bunch of these pieces, but we had to bring them in a different structure so that it's the most efficient you can imagine because the staffing was very limited back in that time. So, yeah, so we launched this and then seven days after the original handshake and launching the scheduling website, uh, we helped launch Dodger Stadium, which was the single largest mass vaccination site in the country. And that was another just like amazing example of, uh, I think I did like being lean and just iterating because I had to go there with at least 30 or 40 people from our technology team executives. We all just physically went to Dodger Stadium, stayed there. We actually had like built some of the software on the ground there. And then the first version wasn't, was working fine. It was better than what existed before Carbon, but it was far from perfect. It was not very accessible. It was not great for us. I mean, as an example, if you were using a landline, uh, you couldn't use it because we required SMS verification. Uh, so we knew about these issues, but we launched it, but it, it was still better. And then every day since mid-January, we have been making iterations on the platform. After a couple of months, I would say like it has now like a state-of-art vaccine distribution platform. Do you know how big of, uh, of, of a fraction of the California vaccine rollout you guys have been? Uh, I think we have done 1.3 million vaccines. Wow. Uh, so, um, and California should be 30 million, so around 4%. Mm -hmm. And I would say uh, like we had capacity to, to do at least three times more than what we did if we had uh, enough supply. So there, were, there was definitely a supply, supply shortage. So we, we had capacity, like we had, we were built enough to do 40,000 vaccines a day. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and it, everything worked well, but then you met, like around like one week ago, until like last week, we were barely able to kind of handle the demand and supply was the main constraint. I think last week, the demand, the constraints went from supplies to the demand. So we've been talking about getting to that tipping point now for, for a couple of months, um, you know, that at some point it, it would, we would switch from demand to supply constraint. So what do you think needs to happen next now, now that we're going to enter into a period of being demand constrained? Uh, what's your view about what needs to happen to, to eventually reach herd immunity? Uh, I mean, what has to happen is uh, we need to vaccinate roughly 30% more of the population. 
I think give or take like 50% are getting vaccinated or are- And we have to get to about 80%, right? We need to get to around 80% because 15% of the population is uh, strictly like against vaccination. I think those are really hard to convince otherwise. And there's another 4 to 5% which are immunocompromised. Uh, so they can't get the vaccine or even if they did, like it was, it's not going to be as effective for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and if you really completely want to go back to normal, like no masking, no social distancing, if you want to forget about this, you roughly need 75% of the population to, get vac- to, have, to be vaccinated. Uh, so it's really the challenge right now is how do we convince the, the remaining 25%. And I think we have to change our approach here. So the, the paternalistic approach where we act like people are being dumb for not getting vaccinated, that, that's wrong because I think what we are missing is like there's still an accessibility issue. An accessibility issue has gone from physical space accessibility to now information accessibility. So you and I are, are always like following the beats of this. We, we track the latest developments and whenever CDCs need guidance, we are aware of that. But a lot of the population actually doesn't have this like as fast of a, I mean, essentially they're not on top of the news cycle as, as much as we are. Of course. So we just have to push the, the information that vaccines are indeed very reliable, fairly low risk. And most people, like majority of the people in the clinical world, they're all getting vaccinated. Essentially, that, like, we really have to push the information to the rest of the population who are not actively like on Twitter kind of following the, following the news here. Are you optimistic that we can reach that threshold? Uh, I am optimistic, uh, but I think the remaining 30% is going to take a lot of initiative from not just local governments and Department of Health and clinical providers, but we'll also need the help from other community leaders, maybe um, the, the, the I mean, religious groups. We will need help from celebrities, athletes, sports teams um, to just really help help like pass the message because there's definitely a lot of mm-hmm. there's a lot of confusing information. So people need to hear this from the people that they trust. And honestly, like clinical, I mean, CDC or the local governments are not always the ones that the, the entire population trusts completely. I mean. Yeah, well, we live in an era where where trust in institutions is at an all time low, um, really, with the exception of the private sector. Exactly, I think the. I mean, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, right? Like more people are getting medical advice from Joe Rogan than Fauci at this point. Lord help us. Well, you know, it's interesting though. We had Ron Klain on uh, in an earlier episode uh, of this podcast uh, from from before the election, even. And uh, and for those who haven't heard, it was fascinating now to compare what's happened to to his predictions and and his philosophy. But one of the things that he has been going on about quite a bit in public uh, is the idea that there was going to be a whole of government response to COVID. And people kept asking him, well, is that, does that include FEMA? Does it include the military? And he kept being like, what part of whole of government are you not understanding? Mm-hmm. We're going to mobilize every resource and asset, you know, and it, leaving aside the question of, of how well they've done, you know, obviously the jury is still out, but it seems like it's going pretty well. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like we are still missing the kind of whole of society response. Mm-hmm. Like we're now at a moment where you know, elites and leaders of companies, of communities, of religious leaders, like all of us who have a privileged position in society seems to me ought to be coming together mm-hmm. to try to reach this this goal. It's not just so that, you know, we can have the convenience of the old normal back. It's much more so that we're talking about still quite a lot of lives to be lost or saved. 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you have a view, kind of having been on the front lines, if you had an ask, if mm-hmm. you could say, hey, uh, if there are people out there who are listening to this right now, what would you want them to do to mobilize and to help uh, mm-hmm. even now in this late date? I, I would say we are entering the phase where now everybody can have a sizable impact on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because when it's all about uh, just the hesitation to get vaccinated or maybe not evaluating the importance of it. So I, I think this is this is where everybody can like play a role. Like mm-hmm. three months ago, um, the, the person in a church like was not very relevant to the response because it was all about scaling distribution and administration of vaccines. Mm-hmm. So um, companies like Carbon Health had a more central role. But at this point, when, you, when it comes to convincing and educating the population, and like uh, this is one, where, one place where we have to work as a whole society. And honestly, when people look at the response in Asia, um, that's one of the, the differences. I think like they actually have worked really as the entire society together to, to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think at the United States, it's a little bit more fragmented. There's a lot of, it, this, this problem has been just very unnecessarily politicized. Uh, so, um, and so, you know, economic discussions about do, do, should you shut down, should they just reopen everything and schools, like, like, I mean, and a lot of people have opinions about these subjects as they should, but yeah, that kind of inner fighting is, is really becoming a ch- ob- obstacle when we are about to solve the problem completely. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's literally one of those unite or die moments. You know, if we can find the unity, if we can find the sense of common purpose, yeah, we can exactly. beat this thing. But if we don't, all the energy we face, we, we spend on, on ancillary issues, I just, it feels like such a waste. Yeah, look, I, I was always very optimistic about uh, just beating the pandemic because this must be the first time where majority of the civilization just like worked towards the same goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we had, we found this moment where we were all united and to in fighting against this pandemic and this virus. And I think we made like a ton of progress and we are about to knock it off for good. Uh, but it's just like, we need to, we, like, it's just, it, it is the last quarter, but we still have to play the last quarter. Because otherwise, it is going to just stay as an endemic. It's going to be like persistent, and people will like people will learn how to live with it, and that might be okay. But you know what? What would be better than learning how to live with it is just really eradicating it. Indeed, I don't know why. Maybe this will seem cheesy, but I have had Lord of the Rings on my mind quite a bit lately, mm-hmm. and and this idea that if we can find common purpose and not and not waste our energy, we can defeat this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really magical. And so for those who kind of have been on the sidelines or have been knocked out of the fight, you know, I always think about, um, and we, we don't have Sir Ian McKellen here to deliver the line properly, but uh, the idea that when Gandalf returns, he says, I, I, I come back to you now at the turn of the tide. And this is that moment. So any one of you can be Gandalf the White and be a hero now mm-hmm. in the fight to to get us through this last push. And if we do that, if we come together to make that happen, Mm-hmm. Um, think about the story we'll be able to tell our children and grandchildren about a world that is free of this kind of uh, this kind of disease, but also hopefully not just this, not just COVID nineteen is eradicated, but we learn what is necessary to defend ourselves against these kind of threats in the future too. Absolutely, and and to be more practical, like if you are an employer, if your employee is just give them time off to get vaccinated. Yes, please, please do that. 
I think one of the things we are observing is like if you're affluent, it's a lot easier to, for you to take time off and you want and go get vaccinated. So that's number one. And just kind of knowledge for everybody. At this point, there's so much vaccine supply. I mean, uh, I mean you can just go get vaccinated same day. I mean, it really will take less than an hour. Just drive somewhere at this point. Like we don't, don't no longer even require scheduling. So you can just come in, register yourself like on site, get in and out in like half an hour or so. So that is easy. So, and also like if you know people like who don't have a car, who like need some maybe com- a companion when to get vaccinated, just like do all of these things. If, if everybody brings one or two people to get vaccinated, we'll just, we'll be able to just honestly do like large gatherings uh, the faster. But otherwise, I'm slightly worried that I think, I mean, I mean, there's a fatigue in dealing with the pandemic. And if you just assume it's completely gone and reverted, there will at least be one more like comeback, right? It, it is going to come back because right now the cases are fairly low because we are still in semi-quarantine mode. Uh, but if you reopen completely without the, the, the remaining 20%, yeah, yeah. If we leave the job half done, we will sh- surely regret it. And we have seen that pattern through the pandemic multiple times. How many geographies, countries, cities have had a really effective response to the pandemic during some phase and then relax because they feel like they won, it's beaten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and conversely, ones that have had really disastrous responses sometimes bounce back much stronger for the next wave because they really learn their lesson. So we we have this one chance, you know, this yeah. one chance to get this right. And exactly. now, now is the moment to, to be in action. And I know the fatigue is real and I know people have struggled, but one final push and we can eradicate this for good. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that like we should continue to quarantine. Like at this point, it's safe to be outside and have dinners and take a haircut and like you should just enjoy these things. But if we completely revert, it's going to come back because we haven't vaccinated enough people yet. But yeah. if we do this in conjunction with also getting our neighbors, getting our friends who are maybe just feeling lazy. Like it's just, if, if you have a friend that like, who's not vaccinated, just come to get, get together, go get vaccinated. Like if you, if you do these things while we are reopening, I think we'll be, we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do, do not get the remaining 20, 30%, but I might the remaining 50%, but I'm assuming that there is 15% that we won't be able to reach out to. So, so we still, we, we need essentially 60% of the remaining people mm-hmm. or so. Uh, but but if you reopen 100%, if you forget about the virus completely, it is going to come back. But if we slowly transition and do our job, then I think we can we can just like forget about this problem like next year or even like be able by by this fall we should be able to we should be able to really just act as if COVID no longer exists. That would be a, a truly a miracle. Talk a little bit about how you've balanced and how you how you see yourself balancing the work of this COVID response with the core business of Carbon Health. Has that been a challenge? And have your investors understood and, and been able to comprehend that, that you have this kind of dual mandate? Uh, what, what's it been like trying to do that balancing act? Uh, it, it certainly has been difficult. Uh, and there's no perfect answer here. And But luckily, our board and investors have been very supportive. So they generally... They know that like we are in this on a daily basis, so we understand. But but the company has grown quite a bit since the pandemic started. So I think we were roughly 200 people in the beginning of 2020. And if COVID never happened, we would like to be six or 700 by the end of the year. But instead, of, instead we have gone from 200 people to 2,000 people in 14 months. 
And I, I think we, we might be one of the fastest growing companies who actually have physical operations. So, and some of it has been really cool specific vaccine rollout, testing type of efforts, but you have also like gone from 10 clinics, 13 clinics to 67 clinics right now. So it is, it's a dual mandate and we keep balancing resources. For example, when the when vaccine rollout was really problematic, we put almost all of our efforts to it for at least a month. And then after a month, we were able to kind of pull back resources to like primary care and our more like longer term healthcare initiatives. So again, it's a constant kind of balancing act. It's all about if there's a truly urgent problem in our communities, we feel like we have to respond. If not, we try to invest in more longer term kind of core business. What do you think is the future of public health in this country, especially what do you, how do you see the relationship between the government and private industry? You've, you've kind of had to straddle both mm-hmm. during this response. Has it, has it changed your view about what, what public health might look like in the future? It has certainly changed. So, so we are now formally building a public health division within the company. So if you think about carbon health, so we have our consumer division working with clinics, direct-to-consumer, and then we have an enterprise division working with companies. And I'm not formally co- incorporating a public health division. We'll have a GM. We'll have dedicated product people, engineers, um, like operations, support, all of those things. Uh, because I, I was able to observe, observe firsthand that the, tr- the traditional model where the government, a local government puts a big RFP and then a bunch of contractors respond to that RFP, that model is not working well. Because uh, it, it just like RFPs end up becoming really convoluted and bloated. And then the contractors are building really software they think as like a one-time software they have to build. So they don't think of this as a living organism. So what we are trying to do differently at Carbon is like, I mean, essentially we want to replicate what we did for vaccine rollout and some other public health problems. So we want to be a technology-enabled public health partner. Um, and there are, I mean, if, if COVID completely goes away, there are a lot of still like public health challenges from healthcare, healthcare in rural areas to uh, healthcare for maybe unsheltered population, healthcare. Essentially, if we want to fix healthcare for the most understood communities, it's, not, it's very hard to do that as a, purely as a for-profit entity. And we actually kind of saw that there's nothing wrong with a private for-profit private company to partner with the local government and nonprofits to just really solve the same problem. Um, and I think it, like that, that type of partnership worked extremely well during when we helped with the vaccine rollout in multiple kind of state, like multiple counties and cities. And I, I just really like, I think that was like a really magical setup. I want to continue that setup for other public health problems in the future. If we have some founders who are listening, um, any issues or problems in the space that that you have learned about or noticed since you've you've been doing this that you'd encourage them to work on? So I would say, even in places like Los Angeles County, there are there are big healthcare deserts, like literally places where you don't can you don't have good healthcare access in fifty miles. Um, and that problem is not a, is not solvable purely from virtual care. So you need still some physical access points. So that's a kind of outstanding problem. Uh, so I would say uh, like working with kind of like schools, like in the school systems, um, there's huge disparity between the resources of different school districts. 
and some of them require more like local government help. So um, yeah, I, honestly, like I would just generally suggest that this whole public health projects are not something exclusively for large defense contractor type companies. Even smaller startups can actually operate fairly well. Just help like as long as they listen to the local governments and understand their problems. Like because some of the best solutions I've seen in COVID-related public health efforts were actually coming from technology startups. They were not the Google, Amazon coming in to save the day type of issues. If anything, actually, I was really disappointed with the response from large companies. I don't think actually any of them, any of these massive companies like have made a significant role in the p- pandemic. But then some smaller tech startups, smaller other entities have actually probably done a lot more than the kind of Googles of the world in this in this uh, pandemic response. It definitely was surprising. I, I I spent a lot of time on the phone with companies large and small the past year, and yeah, the results absolutely speak for themselves. So, what do you feel like the long term impact of the crisis will be? I think I think the silver lining is like twenty years later, we will actually be in a far better position because so many more people are now entering the healthcare space. There are a lot more like strong technical product people coming into the healthcare space. So it's really like the, between the funding, the, the interest from talent. So I think actually it might end up becoming a net positive for healthcare um, because, because of such the increased number of people like working on the space. Like you were not very involved in public health or healthcare in general. Like you, you are now, you're not putting a lot of mind into how uh, technology companies can help here, right? So I think I think that is actually very promising. Um, definitely increased usage of virtual care, uh, but I think what you've seen is the omni-channel care idea is going to become more dominant. Essentially, patients are now expecting their healthcare providers to work with them both online and offline. Uh, so that fragmentation, I think, is going to mostly disappear in the future. Uh, because now every single healthcare provider has learned how to do uh, do like virtual care, and then I think they will continue to doing this as a part of their practice. Uh, so, and lastly, I think some of the industries which went digital first like won't be coming back. I mean, I'm I'm really hoping a lot of investor meetings will now be virtual first, so you don't, you, don't, you won't have to travel as much, which might cause the capital to be more democratized around the around mm-hmm. the world. Certainly, I think there's an interesting implications both for healthcare and also the kind of broader industry. Absolutely. Well, Aaron, I want to say thank you uh, first for coming on and, and sharing the story with us um, as well. You know, thank you for all of the work that you've done, you know, uh, as a founder uh, and as a leader, you know, especially here in California um, um, during COVID, but, but also, you know, how, how lucky we feel, you know, that you chose to immigrate from Turkey and, and to, to do what you have done uh, here in the Valley. It's been, it's just been awesome to, to get to see, see it all come together for you. So congratulations and thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Eric. And I, honestly, I'm mostly a spokesperson for the frontline workers we have, the, the, the people working the product teams and technology teams and support teams. I mean, they really have done all the work. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm merely just helping get people in the same direction. So, but, but thank you very much. Well, a true servant leader as, as, uh, as we always look for. Let me ask you one final question, which is simply, how do we get out of the crisis? I, I think we are closing. We, we really need to just stop politicizing this a little bit and realize that we are about to be over with it and everybody's on the same same side here. Increase vaccine information and reduce the 
quarantines, but still have some like minor still protections until we are until we are fully over the hump. Um, and I think just kind of really just like work as a, as a whole society just uh, together to like for the next really, I think three more months and we are, we are completely over, over this problem. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Eric. This has been Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Ries. Out of the Crisis is produced by Ben Ehrlich, edited by Zach McNeese and Sean McGuire. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Hosting by Breaker. For more information on ways to get involved, visit helpwithcovid.com. If you or someone you know is leading an effort to make a difference, please tell me about it. I'm at E-R-I-C-R-I-E-S on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Please rate and subscribe wherever you like to listen.